are listening to Historically, a show where we decolonize history and debunk myths and misinformation taught to you in school and on corporate media. I'm your host, Isha. Today, we have Todd Miller, who's a professor in Arizona, who's just written a book called Empire of Borders. He will come and talk to us about how far the U.S. empire has expanded and what borders really mean. Hi. How are you doing? Uh, very good. How are you? Good. Thank you for coming on to the show. Can you please introduce yourself and tell people a little bit about what you do and where you teach? Oh, sure. I'm an author, journalist. I've been covering issues around the border, particularly the U.S.-Mexico border, but increasingly just borders in general throughout the globe for about 15 years. Empire of Borders is my third book. My first book was called Border Patrol Nation Dispatches from the Front Lines of Homeland Security, and that was published in 2014. And a uh, second book was called Storming the Wall, Climate Change, Migration, and Homeland Security, and that was published in 2017. And so that's a little bit about me. Okay. Thank you for letting us have a sneak peek on the Empire of Borders. I mean, when I read it, I was texting and highlighting every single sentence, but the first thing I thought was, this sounds like the movie Elysium. So let me just go through all the questions I highlighted and let me know if it's uh, too much or whatever. Can you first explain what BORTAC is? It was on an earlier research trip for Empire of Borders, and I was in Guatemala, and I was going to meet with a commander of a new border force in Guatemala. And so I got to um, the military base in Zacapa, and that's like in kind of near the Honduran borderlands of Guatemala. And I was two hours late. How far is that from the U.S.-Mexico border for people to understand? It's about, I believe, and I'm estimating about 1,000, 1,500 miles. Yeah, so pretty far. <laughs> and so I was two hours late for various reasons, which I won't get into right now. Since I was so late, I had to try to um, explain to the soldiers at the at the gate and uh, the, these are the Guatemala the Guatemala military so I had to try to explain to them you know about the uh, that I was late that I wanted to get you know talk to the commander and whatnot so long story short one of the soldiers asked me if I was from Bortac and um, it took me really completely by surprise to hear that that term being used by a soldier so far away, like over a thousand miles from the United States, about a, a unit of the U.S. Border Patrol that really, you know, when you when you bring that up in the United States, very few people have ever heard of them. And here I was, you know, in Sacapa and asked if I was a part of BORTAC. And BORTAC, it's a special forces unit of the U.S. Border Patrol. So they do like kind of what you would consider, I guess, special forces, tactical sort of really military-esque sort of uh, operations on the U.S.-Mexico border as one part of their mission. But the other part of their mission is to uh, go to other countries around the world and give trainings on, you know, if a country is going to form a border patrol and that sort of thing. That's the unit from the U.S. Border Patrol that goes to places like Zacapa, to places like Guatemala. If Guatemala is saying, oh, we want a border patrol, well, then, you know, we need training from the United States. 
it is Bortak who gets sent there. And obviously, you know, without me even asking, there was the answer to, you know, given to me by that soldier. Bortak had clearly been there probably multiple times, enough that the soldier would know that name just, you know, right off the top of his head. Okay, so what people think of as borders, like between U.S.-Mexico and U.S.-Canada, is not exactly where the border is. Can you talk about, uh, I guess there's a lot of activities, like, so just mention, like, uh, one or two places far away where you've seen U.S. border patrol activity. Yeah, so one place that comes quickly to mind is Puerto Rico. And of course, you know, Puerto Rico is a U.S. territory or a colony, if you will. So, but it's also about a thousand miles away from the mainland United States. And that's the one place where there is a border patrol sector that's outside of the mainland. So I was quite surprised when I was in Puerto Rico and I was on the West Coast and I saw green striped U.S. border patrol vehicles patrolling. Uh, much like I see where I live in Arizona. I knew that I'd see some sort of presence, but I didn't realize the extent of it. There's enough U.S. territory in that region that they could get really close to the Dominican Republic within 30 miles. So the border can literally, is elastic in many ways, can literally extend a thousand miles away. That's one place. Another place to mention, and this is a bit of a different way that the Border Patrol makes its presence, is... uh, Kenya, Nairobi. And I was in Nairobi in southern Kenya doing research for Empire of Borders. And Nairobi at the U.S. Embassy, there's a Customs and Border Protection attache, one of 23 such attaches around the world. And one of the things that that attache did was bring in Border Patrol units like Bortac that we just discussed to do trainings of a new Kenyan Border Patrol I think it's called the Rural Border Patrol Unit that has been active since, I think, around 2009 or 2010. And so in, just, so in those two different ways, you can see how the U.S. border apparatus can extend itself to really, really far away from territorial U.S. borders. One thing that really shocked me was what happened in Ecuador and how this journalist described it as floating Guantanamos. Do you mind expounding on that? Yeah, I believe that's a title of the piece by Seth Fried Wessler, who described what were floating Guantanamos was basically the Coast Guard cutters or boats or ships who would then interdict um, different, you know, people coming north, especially people that were like and they that would were accused of being smugglers, which is often like you know a catchword that's so often used when people are discussing border policing. And the cutters or the ships themselves became detention centers or prison camps, if you will. And, you know, that's another example of how the U.S. border can extend because the Coast Guard can operate in international water. So it can go, it can extend almost all the way up to the coast of Ecuador or even further or even, you know, overseas to all around the world, you see U.S. Coast Guard, when literally Coast Guard is supposed to be the border patrol of the U.S. coast. For me, the biggest question is why? Like, so can you talk about what happened, what the Homeland Security Act did in 2002 and how everything started from here? 
I should preface this by saying pre 9-11, there were U.S. international programs like the uh, Immigration and Naturalization Service, the pre-DHS body. They had different international programs working throughout the world, but to a much, much lesser extent. And then post 9-11, with the, the creation of the Department of Homeland Security and the Homeland Security Act, among many other things, you just see this incredible expansion of these international operations, so much that I really think it has to be considered one of the primary strategies that's really not mentioned too often. One of the primary strategies of the United States, this idea that, for example, when you look at the 9-11 Commission report, and I'm going to have to paraphrase because I don't have the quote in front of me, but it says explicitly that the United States has to go over there, meaning over wherever there is to confront whatever threats there are to the country. Here's the exact quote. 9-11 has taught us that terrorism against Americans over there should be regarded just as we regard terrorism against Americans over here. In the same sense, the American homeland is the planet. Yep. (laughs) That's a shocking quote. Yeah. So it got built up from 2003 to what we have currently. One thing that at least like I've noticed or I've had personal experience with is the U.S. doesn't seem to consider who it cooperates. So it's like giving up Saudi dissidents to be beheaded and things like that. Like, is it for like just who the U.S. considers quote unquote allies or is it for the U.S. to kind of maintain current population inside current borders, I guess? It is really done through a series of partnerships. And it's amazing how many partnerships there are, quite frankly. Literally, I, I began to think, you know, when I was, I knew that when I started doing this book that I'd find a lot, but I didn't even realize the extent of what I would find or how expansive it is or how many different places. Literally, I, you can stand in front of a map and just close your eyes and point randomly at the map. And most likely your finger will land on a country that the U.S. is cooperating with or has some sort of program or has sent resources to or is encouraging to build up its borders in some sort of way. And we're talking over 100 countries that have had been through programs or in programs to varying degrees. As one CBP official said, our international programs have increased exponentially, quote unquote. One of the things that I, like the framings that I kind of look at it, there's one, you know, there's a territorial actual territorial borders of U.S. sovereignty, right? The, ter- the the country itself. And then there's the expanded version of what the United States is, right? So what is U.S. empire, right? How far does that extend? And how much do then do we have to consider those, you know, the places where there's lots of interest for Washington or U.S. companies or whatnot? In those places, how much do we have to consider those places? Or through, if you're looking through the lens of U.S. interests, how much do we have to consider those places as a part of what the United States wants to protect or what it considers its territories, even though it's there, are, you know, other countries or other sovereignties? And those are the dualities that I that you kind of look at, you know, one of territorial borders and one of what is the U.S. empire and how then U.S. then protects its interests around this empire. I learned a new word while reading your book called securocratic war. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, and that's what I was just about <laughs> was I was just about to mention that. So yes, um 
the thing about like looking at securocratic or you could call it security warfare is that the idea of warfare being you know that of two different nation states you know going to war amassing armies and going to war with each other you know there's still some that happens to a certain degree i guess it doesn't happen what we're seeing around the world is more of what this what would be called a security warfare and the security warfare is like when you look at border enforcement or border scapes or countries that put up or militarize their borders what is really happening in these different places is that these countries are declaring a sort of permanent albeit low intensity war zone in those places or it could be high intensity if you know depending on the situation and if you have in border situations the border zones that become permanent war zones then people who are you know cross into across these lines of division and become you know illegalized or unauthorized or become the targets of this sort of militarization what happens is a new kind of warfare against people who are border crossers really and it's not like the border crossers themselves are are fighting these apparatuses these security apparatuses with guns or anything they're trying most for the most part people are trying to evade these kind of massive buildups and by evading them you know the kind of violence and brutality of it evades the public eye it goes into places that are very remote oftentimes the border apparatus is set up so people will evade it and go into places that are meant to be really difficult to cross or very dangerous to cross or desolate and that's one of the reasons there's been so many people dying in different places crossing borders like the Arizona desert where i live every single year every single summer hundreds of people die or the mediterranean sea or you can name a lot of examples and those are the many like you can have probably a long list of brutalities of a bureaucratic or security war and how violent and brutal it is and also it would include like the incarceration the prison camps the rounding up of people because they don't have proper papers that sort of thing all that would be under the rubric of what would be a securocratic war um one thing that really shocked me is your coat from conservative columnist William Lind who talked about the fourth generation war can you explain what he meant and how much of what he said is actually being actively carried out in policy could you repeat the quote in fourth generation war invasion by immigration can be at least as dangerous as invasion by a state army yeah what you have uh in that in that quote is basically it's really what we see every day from Donald Trump in the United States this idea that people crossing the borders are the real threat the the threat to the security of people in the country whether it be the United States or or another country you know and you know they're just as dangerous as a foreign army coming in and wreaking havoc in the country so that's that's a sort of trope or the sort of narrative that has become really strong especially among the extreme right or really conservative thinkers like lind or very i mean it's very become very mainstream in the united states especially with with donald trump and uh what you know that we the way what we see every day via his what he says and his tweets and that sort of thing 
for me, it seems like it's reminiscent of the Cold War where I really like the coat by George Rigakos that you put in where he says, social problems have become security problems. So it feels like it's like a war on the poor. Yes, that's exactly what it is. It's a war on the poor. But as always, the poor, you know, if you take the Lin quote, the poor are are the threats, right? Oh, they're coming to get us. Oh, what are they going to do? They're going to steal our way of life, right? That, And then at the same time, you have the, you know, like a more unpacking of what security really mean. What is, if you look at, you know, the term border security, which is pretty much used constantly, it's used, you know, it's used by Republicans, Republicans is used by Democrats. It's just a word that, I, I, in fact, I did I did um, a Google search on that on we're all for border security and I put it in quotes and what came up was a you know a number of Democrats saying that right mm-hmm. so it's like Nancy Pelosi saying it and Chuck Schumer saying it and you know the the list goes on we're all for border security and the word is just repeated and repeated and repeated and it's it's like you know that like who could be possibly against security we're all for it. It's, but under, it's not unpacked. So underneath that we're all for security, it's this whole set of dynamics that really play into what Lind is saying. Like, oh, we need border security because there's a threat coming across to get us. There's something that's going to cross that line, you know, that's an enemy and it's going to steal something from me. Or so when you have like, people saying this, first of all, it's this play on words, right? Because who could be against security, but at the same time, it espouses the same sort of xenophobia, the same sort of kind of nativism, the same sort of like, we have to protect ourselves from what these barbarians that are going to cross the border and get us. So it's the same exact thing. And so, and then who are the quote unquote barbarians? Well, it's generally people who, who are in situations where they are displaced for some reason that often you know, created by the U S itself <laughs> like in Guatemala. Exactly. Right. One thing that really stuck out to me was the indigenous idea of land. Like you talked about how two cousins like were kind of surprised to know that they were citizens of different countries like Guatemala and Honduras. So how much of this is like leading to like erosion of indigenous culture because of the way these borders have been militarized? I think it's absolutely designed to be that way, right? Um, When you look at European colonization, or if you look at the origins of these borders, these political borders, how they were formed, how they were drawn, who drew them, how they were imposed, they're almost always, wherever you go across the globe, they're almost always going through indigenous communities, people that, you know, dividing people who shared languages and and cultures and that sort of thing. And it, it really plays into when you divide like pe- the Maya Torti in Honduras from the Maya Torti in Guatemala, well, people that would naturally organize or be community together or organize together even politically and have a political, you know, all of a sudden they're divided. And the same goes for the Maasai in, in Kenya. If you, the Kenya and Tanzania, the border cuts right through you know, where they, their native land. So now the, the Kenyans in, or the Maasai in uh, Tanzania 
I have to organize in Tanzania to pressure the Tanzanian government, and then the Maasai and Kenya have to organize the pressure the Kenyan government, and they're not, they, and what would be unified is not. And it does, it serves as a kind of a divide and conquer strategy. And it comes from European, your European powers. Uh, most of the borders that we have, and most of the countries, the nation states, were drawn by the European powers. And the sharp example is the Africa and the Berlin Conference of, of 1884. So in Berlin, you know, all the different powers in Europe decided to cut up Africa and designate it to certain countries. And those sorts of borders that happened then after the independence, you know, in the mid 20th century that happened in Africa, those borders still remain, right? So the Africa is divided up by, in a way that, that was done by Germany and France and Great Britain and so on and so forth. So it's all about eroding indigenous cultures and imposing a kind of a colonizing point, a worldview that still is kind of is, is emblazoned in our minds. So far, my newsletters have not been paywalled because, well, I want to abolish walls, including paywalls. I want to keep my content in the public domain, and I want this information to be shared amongst a large audience. But we do have expenses here to cover, and so we really need you to subscribe. Go to historically.substack.com and please subscribe. For $5 a month, you will get at least one newsletter a week, if not more, with really interesting stuff. And you will get our podcasts. So please subscribe. Thank you. The technology seems to get more militarized and more gruesome as the years go along. In your book, you talk about dojo. Is that right? Or dogo? I think it's dogo, but I guess it could be pronounced a number of different ways. I think it's dogo, though. Can you explain what it is and... How frightened, like, I was just frightened when I heard about it. <laughs> yeah, so I was frightened when I saw it. Um, well, in the case of the Dogo technology, I was at a, I guess you call it an expo, a technology expo in Tel Aviv. And so the expo itself, it, there's a lot of vendors, particularly Israeli vendors, who were showing different technologies. It was a Homeland Security um, expo. And um, so the vendors of different companies are showing their wares. And then people from all over the world came in and were looking at the different, you know, products they had, primarily drones. There was a lot of drones in this particular expo. And in the back, there was, um, there was a demonstrations going on throughout the morning. And uh, so when I went to the back, that's, that's where I first saw the Dogo technology, which is basically a robot a little, a small robot. It was like a little black box that the person doing the demonstration was zooming it around and there was a little robot. It was almost like a, a dog or something like going up to people watching it. And then all of a sudden there was a pause and they decided to just, you know, ratchet up a little bit the demonstration and the vendor took out a Glock pistol handgun and inserted it into the Dogo and then all of a sudden there was a dogo and it was um, this still a black box robot with, um, and you could see because the kind of barrel of the gun through the hole and there it was, it was, had, it was weaponized, it could shoot. And of course that was one of the technologies that they were 
showing as part of you know what different countries could use to enhance their their homeland security apparatus and, and that was one of many things at the same time just to, end, to mention one more technology there was a what was called an orbiter three i believe it was which is a drone that was flying over us so we were watching the dogo and the person announcing the dogo was he was almost like a sportscaster in a way and he he didn't speak in hebrew he spoke in english right he speak he spoke in u.s english and he was all excited and every move the dogo made He'd say, oh, it's going to the left. Oh, it's going to the right. Oh, watch out. Don't shoot me. You know, he'd, it was almost like it was amusing, but it was he was still selling the product. But at the same time, he would pause and point up to the sky occasionally, and you'd see the Orbiter 3 drone, which I learned later, actually, was what they call a suicide drone. So it could do surveillance for a couple hours, and then if you wanted to, then the orbiter drone then could find a target and then dive bomb the target and become a missile. Those are the two things I was seeing at once. So a robot is kind of programmed and it can kind of kill somebody, like if it programming says so, without any human intervention? In this case, the human had a like an iPad or something oh, okay. and he was controlling the, the dogo. And I assume the same with the orbiter that was flying overhead. In most cases, yeah, I don't... I have heard, though, that you now that you mention it, that there is some technologies being developed about around programming robots and robotics and drones to be able to make determinations on their own. But I haven't heard that any of that's implemented yet, though it very well, very, very well maybe you know you never know. But what I've seen is still mainly there's a human behind it you know, either in a control room or with an iPad or something like that. And to me, I guess the frightening thing was how many for-profit companies are making a lot of money off of this and and the incentives that just sets up. Yes, that should be uh, a forefront concern of, yeah, it's a, the incentive, the Homeland Security industry is one that's growing the the market forecasts for the homeland security border industries are in you know all all you know are showing a market that's growing and growing and growing there's more and more and more companies that are trying to like develop different technologies like the dogos and the orbiters and like will you name it uh different like biometric systems facial recognition you know really orwellian databases where you can track people, monitor people, the show who can has access, who does not. And in the case of Israel, right, uh, what I was looking at too was how often this te- these technologies are first tested in the occupied territories, and then they, they, they become quote-unquote combat proven or proven by their testing in the Gaza Strip or the West Bank. Yikes. And then from there, then that, that gets their stamp of approval and they're able to sell it to the international community based on that. And so you have, you know, this technology proliferating throughout the globe that's used in the most repressive way against people. And yeah, so I, I think it's it's of utmost concern. And I guess for me, another, what surprised me is from your book, how you talked about how Raytheon was providing technology for the Tuartes, like uh, in the Philippines, like his mission. And so 
how do we control this like monster that we created that most people aren't even aware of? Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's it's really expanded, extensive. Most, yeah, most people don't know that Raytheon Corporation from a paycheck that they got from the U.S. Embassy developed a command and control center in Manila Bay that's doing maritime security in the waters around the nation of 7,000 islands. This thing is huge. It's ex- it's extensive, and it's true that it's, there aren't. <laughs> it's I, I think like the awareness that of how huge it is, how big it is, how expanded it is, how much money is involved in this, how many companies are profiting and thus having the incentive. The fact that it is a complex, right? There's a the nature of an industrial complex is to expand and expand and expand, and to just to have that sort of awareness around this kind of expanded notion of of what the border is probably would be helpful and at least as a first step obviously we're dealing with something that's really big that's really entrenched there's a lot of money involved in it but something's got to give because i think one of the things you know you always hear about borders and like for example to go back to that term border security it's like the the term itself like creates a framing that well we're defending our sovereign nation right and that's what we're doing. And when it's framed that way, you're getting an incorrect analysis or an incorrect framing of what it is. When you think of like this massive border apparatus that involves, of course, the United States, but if you add the European Union and, and just kind of the global border system, this whole border system is put in place to keep a business as usual or a status quo in place and a status quo that many are saying is suicidal status quo if you think about you know, emissions and climate change and global warming, or, you know, a status quo that keeps like massive inequalities in place, because obviously the policies that are happening, they're handed out by the places like the United States and European Union are going to have tremendous blowback and tremendous, you know, it's going to, there's going to be tremendous upheavals if the United States or U.S. companies are in different places just extracting all of its natural wealth and leaving, you know, becoming part of the marginalization or that the United States has emitted 700 times more greenhouse gas emissions than Honduras, uh, El Salvador and Guatemala combined. So this, this inequality of like the global warming crisis that's happening, that it has direct is responsible from industries, mainly from places like the United States. And then in order to hold this kind of business as usual in place, you have to have this massive border apparatus. So once you can shift the thinking of a border apparatus from this inaccurate term of border security to more of this, like, this is a gigantic global system that's trying to keep this really unjust system in place, then all of a sudden the solutions to what we're dealing with become much different, right? And that and maybe that that could like clarify the way of thinking and maybe there's maybe some sort of solution could be found, you know, if we were to shift into that trajectory. Well, I know we're going to change gears slightly. On top of the security state comes the surveillance state. And for me, the story that stuck out from your book is the one from Brazil about where the U.S. embassy was caught putting looks poor, talks poor. You want to talk about that? Yeah. The Brazil example is such a blatant example, and they were caught doing it. But I would guess, and that's what they do, right, everywhere, 
and they just were caught in Brazil. But that story of, you know, when I, I believe it was visa applicants, right? Um, in the term of the Brazil. So they're coming to say, oh, we want, you know, applying for a visa to come to the United States. But then the U.S. official in, in Brazil would, would write LP, like looks poor, you know, have this code language. Not a very good code. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's what is it? That's profiling. And we know that sort of profiling is just rampant, you know, and and that but that's an example of two of the extensive surveillance or the kind of uh, how much the United States is trying to keep an eye on people who are either applying for visas or people getting on planes coming to the United States. That's another really huge post 9-11 development. One of the developments uh, was called the National Targeting Center. A National Targeting Center didn't exist pre-9-11, but after 9-11, it began, and it's Customs and Border Protection. And at first, it was two cubicles in 2001, and then now it's like the size of two football fields. I think it's around 800 employees, and they all are sitting at their computers and analyzing every, you know, from visa applicants. And the visa applicants are also, I should mention, ICE, or Immigration and Customs Enforcement, has extensive international programs too. And they go around the globe looking at all the applications of visa applicants. So they have a whole part of their, they have a whole department that does that, that are, and they have ICE agents stationed, you know, I think there's 48 ICE attaches around the world. And, but also there's this targeting center that's grown exponentially and they look at, I believe it's, can't remember the number, it's some gigantic number. They're at, if, you're, if you're flying into the United States from another country, you're going to be analyzed at this national targeting center. So they're looking at, you know, they're, they're looking at every single person that's coming. You have all these people in this gigantic kind of command and control center. And then you have... On top of that, CBP agents who are in different airports, and this goes from like pre-clearance sites, you have to go through Customs and Border Protection. It's like as if you enter the United States in places like Shannon, Ireland, or Dublin, Ireland, if you go to the airport, or they have pre-clearance sites, or they have undercover immigration agents in different airports. I've actually had that happen because... um a few years ago, I was traveling from Australia to India, and they let you put your shoes on. There was, like, no one cared, nothing, and then, like, the Indian dude stamped my passport. But then when I was coming from India to U.S., like, all the U.S. passengers were sent into a special terminal, like, where it was extra restrictive. Uh-huh. And so, I, yeah, I remember that, <laughs> like, personally experiencing that. Was that a pre-clearance site? Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly what that what that is, and that's exactly... That extension of the border—it's it's just a, one of the many manifest another manifestation of it. So you're getting cleared while you're in India, mm-hmm. and then they could try. And there's incidents of people getting stopped from going on getting on the planes. And another, this is another uh, example of how CBP's in cahoots with the private industry. They work with the airlines, so the airlines are you know giving information about their passengers. And so the airlines are become a part of the policing apparatus as well. And so it depends, like they call them stakeholders. That's like, they call them, you know, that nice term, but that's basically, it's a partnership in the, in the surveillance apparatus that they're really trying to get bigger and wider and more expansive. And, and then if you are like, say you're coming 
traveling from India to the United States and they detect something about you, like you've been to Syria, for example, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, oh, that means you, you should get more scrutiny. And then they have, you know, there's, they'll go and look in your social media. They'll try to look at, you know, who you are. They'll get your digital profile. You know, if you're one of those, like they can't, obviously they can't look at every single person, but if there's something sort of red alert about or a red flag about you or some other person, they'll, they'll start looking at every, you know, your, your digital footprint, like who you are. They'll try to get into your Facebook account and look at your Facebook and see what, what kind of relationships you have and that sort of thing. Um, so to me, a lot of like the book is you talked about the U.S.-Syria border. Obviously, there's no U.S.-Syria border, but there is a border in Turkey that prevents Syrians from going in there. So it seems like a lot of times it's like the U.S. created a mess and then it's trying to contain it. Like, is that the feeling you get? Yes, yeah, it's, it's really that is. If you could put it in the most in the one sentence, that's probably a really good sentence to put it. And like the U- the U.S. and the Middle East, what has its policy? What is what kind of turmoil has it caused for so many years? And and uh, oh, here's the U.S. in places like Turkey and Jordan with programs helping both those countries build up their borders. Turkey with Syria, Jordan with Syria, Jordan with Iraq, and uh, oh, lo and behold, you know you have these places that are that are a complete mess, like Iraq due to the U.S. military operations. or, And yeah, so it becomes like, oh, this is a massive system of containment that again, it keeps like, wow, if we bomb Iraq, then there's going to be a lot of people that are going to, you know, be fleeing and they're going to be, they're going to want to organize. They're going to want to not have this thing that's happening and maybe like, want our influence out of there, right? So it kind of made, you know, it's a way of maintaining power in different areas. Yeah. To me, what was most dramatic was what's happening in Africa, near like Libya and um, Morocco and everything. Like, my first question is, what on earth is like the U.S. doing there? And Kenya, for example, like, why does the U.S. care if people go from Kenya to Tanzania and back. Like, that part just perplexes me. Yeah, the like, one of the things, you know, in Kenya and Tanzania, the border, when there's nothing there. Like, <laughs> Desert. I, I went, there are. I mean, it's it's elusive to think there's nothing there because there is. But when you go to the actual border, it's, it's just a monument. You cross over, cross back. Obviously, if, you know, if you're, caught by some sort of police they would and they wouldn't have the proper papers but you could do it and so but like kenya as one example and is like a hub in africa so that's one of the places where customs and border protection did put it you know does put an attache this attache has coordinated a number of different things including a, a kenyan border patrol while the tanzania border itself is one thing uh it does as you know talking to different people in that area it does divide like people who would naturally organize together so it has that power of dividing peoples but then also what you know where a lot of the focus in kenya takes place is the somali border so where kenya is building a wall 
there's a concentration of, you know, building, you know, border apparatus there. There's a lot of U.S. support. There's U.S. soldiers there. And of course, oh, yeah, that's where, you know, the U.S. has been running military operations and an endless war with Somalia for so long, right? And so you can see, like, the U.S. geopolitical interests in Africa. And also, when you think about the Northern African countries like Morocco and Libya and um, Egypt, each of those places where there's different programs from the United States, where you're, what you're seeing in those countries is a more prominent European border externalization. So each of those countries are getting tons of money from the European Union to build up their borders. And then the United States is almost like cooperating by bringing its programs in there it becomes a kind of U.S. Euro, if you're in Morocco, Moroccan front where you have these Northern African countries who then serve as a border. They become a border themselves, right, for people coming from sub-Saharan Africa. They have to get through Libya to get to even the Mediterranean, and Libya is now really difficult to get across, or Morocco is really difficult to get across, and it's made purposely so before you even get to like the places where you could cross into Europe. And so the U.S. and Europe play a part in that, and it's, and it's all, again, another, um, in my estimation, another... Who has access? Who who has to stay? Who has to be confined? When we're looking at a like a global border system, Africa, you know, in general, has been a place that's been thoroughly exploited. And and on top of that, it's getting really, really the impacts of global warming and 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 particularly sub-Saharan Africa have been devastating. And so there's a variety of things that are just causing upheavals and displacements. And so like this kind of confinement apparatus by various countries seem to be like part of that thing. Like you have to stay there or only a few can get through and, and, you know, this kind of keeping everything in its place, quote unquote. Have you seen the movie Elysium? I have not. I have not. I know you mentioned that at the beginning. Maybe I have. Explain. Oh, well, there was, there's a colony on the moon where all the rich people are. And then on Earth, like they have this like uh, all the poor people are there. And basically people from who are citizens of Earth can't go to Elysium unless they're like slaves or something. And it just reminds me of real life Elysium here. <laughs> yeah. So before we leave, um, do you have any like what is your next project after this? I actually have a report coming out. It's coming out actually in, in uh, I believe, September with the Transnational Institute. And it really looks into the, the border industrial complex. So what I did in this report was look at all the different companies getting the most contracts with Customs and Border Protection, and then what kind of influence they have in Washington and their lobbying power and, and how many campaign contributions and who's bringing up policy. And so it, it is a pretty comprehensive look at what has to be described as a complex. And uh, I also am at work on a new, very short book that has a tentative title called Build Bridges, Not Walls, which is basically another way of saying it's a book that looks at you know, really tries to contemplate what an abolition movement might be when you're looking at these border immigration enforcement apparatus, you know, like abolish ICE. So it's a short book, but it's kind of a primer and kind of and looking into that and or what we could do instead of doing that for the well-being of all. That actually sounds like a good idea. 
how do people find you on Twitter or social media if they want to? On Twitter, my handle is at Memo Miller, which is M-E-M-O-M-I-L-L-E-R. And I have Facebook too. And also my um, my name, of course, my name, Todd Miller. And I have a website that people can go to. And your book comes out on August 6th. Like, is a pre-order available? Yeah, you can order it today. In fact, if you ordered it today, it would be, it would probably come to you like as if it has come out because it usually takes about a week or so. So it's out in a week. It's about to go out. Excellent. Thank you so much for coming. And um, for me, like the entire book, like left me shocked. Like it took me like, after you sent it to me, it took me like three days for me to go through it. And each paragraph was more shocking than the next. (laughs) (laughs) So thanks again. And thank uh, you. Oh, one hypothetical. If you could ask the Democratic presidential candidates a proper question about immigration rather than what the media asks, what would it be? Ah, (laughs) oh, man. (laughs) I mean, one thing that I always think of with with the Democratic Party is that all this border buildup has been bipartisan. Yeah, it's true that Trump these days, the last couple of years, it's there's a further ratcheting, but the Democrats have been very involved with it through the Obama years and the Clinton, Bill Clinton. So there's been this history of of the Democrats just being really pro-border security and saying that and and it really being a part of their their modus operandi, the MO, right? And then what's interesting is that since Trump took office in 2017, there has been like a you know, I've seen the Democrats take, or at least prominent Democrats take a stand on border immigration stuff like I'd never seen before. All of a sudden, you know, like people that have voted for the wall in 2006 are now now against the wall, right? And, mm-hmm. and to me, I'm like, I really don't believe that voting, I believe voting on Trump probably might be a great idea, but I don't believe it solves the big problem we're talking about, given the history of the Democrats as part of this project. So I think that would be my question. I'm saying very long-winded, you know, but I I would ask them something about, you have traditionally been a part, you know, helped build up this massive apparatus that has, you know, inflicted violence and separated families. And all of a sudden now you're not, but but is this a political ploy that, you know, because you're against Trump and and we're going to, you know, you can use that as fodder against Trump and then you'll return to your ways of the past? Or are you really um, onto something new? And would is there a possibility of, of being able to imagine a new world that doesn't have this stuff if, you, if one of you were to be elected? It would probably be something like that. Oh, that's an excellent question. And thank you again. Thank you. I would really appreciate it. And I really enjoy your podcast. Thank um, you for listening. And I hope you have a good d- rest of the day. <laughs> yeah, you too. Bye. Bye. Music for this show is done by Rectech. You can find him on SoundCloud and on Spotify. W-R-E-C-K-T-E-C-H. And thank you for listening to our show.